Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. The Tragedy of the Commons. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Dr. Nikki Limoli, Assistant Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Iowa. Our conversation covers Nikki's journey to becoming a research scientist and complex systems of communication that can be found in bacteria as well as approaches to learning, creativity, collaboration, and community. Bacterial genomes have allowed us to see a broader picture of bacterial communities and how those communities thrive on diversity and yet can collapse through cheating, uh, something that Nikki describes as the tragedy of the commons. And we talk about how we see an arms race between pathogens and humans. We dig deeper into culture and collaboration among scientists and across labs and the role of mentors in mentorship including ways to generate and test good hypotheses, including the importance of synthesis and the ability to ask interesting questions. We explore how a focus on perfection can impede research and learning. Nikki shares the importance of persistence and belief in your ability to contribute to something special. It's on purpose. It's not an accident. I really appreciate Nikki sharing her personal cancer diagnosis in a time of pandemic and how that's shaping and reshaping her relationship with her peers and community. I'd like to thank Nikki for joining me for this discussion. I hope you enjoy the episode. Nikki, thanks so much for joining us on the IY Idea podcast. Uh, when we get started with our conversations, the, the first thing I, I ask is if you could just uh, tell me and tell our listeners a little, a little bit about yourself. Sure, of course. Thanks, Matt, for having me. Um, I am an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Iowa. I moved to Iowa City uh, the fall of 2018. Um, I grew up in Ohio, um, and then I got my PhD at Ohio State, and then did two postdoc fellowships before I moved to Iowa City, um, one at Emory um, in Atlanta, and a second at Dartmouth and New Hampshire. So I moved here from New Hampshire um, to start my lab. And uh, my, my lab studies bacterial infections in people who have cystic fibrosis. Um, and one of the, what we're really interested in is studying how bacteria communicate with each other, how they can send signals to each other, both um, within a single species of bacteria, but then also uh, among different species. Um, so we see that in cystic fibrosis patients, they um, have a genetic disease that makes them susceptible to getting uh, bacterial infections and viral infections. Um, and they're infected with a lot of different species. And so um, we study how those species communicate with each other um, in general. That's great. Thank you. A uh, couple questions that I want to dig in on, on that is also uh, two, two big areas there were bacterial infection and cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. In, in your, your kind of research journey, which came first? Were you studying cystic fibrosis or were you studying bacterial infections? You can walk me through kind of that journey. Sure. Um, well, so it's interesting. It was kind of a, a little bit of both, I guess. Um, I got into science initially uh, when my uh, dear friend of mine um, passed away when I was 16 from leukemia. And so my initial interest into science and medicine came from wanting to study pediatric diseases. And so um, cystic fibrosis is, again, a genetic disease that, that kids suffer from, you know, from the time that they're born through the duration of their lives. Um, and while it's actually not just a pediatric disease anymore because we're able to keep patients alive um, much longer, which is wonderful, um, that was my initial interest. Um, but kind of along the way, I actually started studying uh, bacterial infections and microbiology in my training. And then in graduate school, the two interests sort of merged together where I found that 
um, I could study bacterial infections in cystic fibrosis patients. So my interest in science then merged with my personal desire to study a pediatric disease. Thank you. Yeah, because that's one of the big ideas we try to explore in, in the podcast is talking to people is I'm always interested in kind of what either pushed down their path or pulled them down their path, but really interested in things that converge that, that bring you to where you are. So a, a deep personal connection kind of early in your life and then kind of the, the convergence of a couple different areas of uh, uh, disease and, and microbiology. Yeah. What brought you to Iowa City? Um, the, mostly just the availability of, of the job in the department. So um, uh, University of Iowa has a really strong microbiology department. Um, actually, so it has the two things that I'm really, that re really interest my research. So there's a strong cystic fibrosis um, center and a, re a really large group that studies um, the non-microbiology side of cystic fibrosis. And then we have a strong microbiology department as well. Um, and so those two things uh, being here uniquely at the University of Iowa is what brought me here for that position. So there was basically, there was kind of a Venn diagram of your main interests and right in the mm -hmm. middle of the overlap was the University of Iowa. Yes. That's great. Um, so uh, one of the things that I'm interested in in, in design and, and uh, curious to explore this with you uh, is the idea of uh, biomimicry. You know, for complex systems, sometimes in design, we look at uh, what, how is this problem presented itself in other systems? in this case, natural systems, and what might we learn from it? So I'm really curious about uh, kind of the communication aspects and for lack of better terms, and, and feel free to, to call me out if I'm misrepresenting, <laughs> but, but what I was hearing was almost a network effect of bacteria. So you could almost have an, an individual species or element and then almost like a super species as, as, a, as a kind of loose, loosely connected network communicating with it with each other. Do you mind telling me a little bit about how bacteria communicate with each other? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is one of the things that really fascinated me about bacteria when I started studying them is this uh, concept that it's not just kind of a mixed bag of bacteria like we like to think about. It's they have really um, ordered uh, communities um, and, and higher order structures that are commonly seen in our own human societies. Um, so they can um, specialize uh, within a community of having different tasks. So you have uh, different, um, different organisms or even with just different populations of the same species that do different things. Um, so one of them could be protecting from the immune response while another group is you know, generating nutrients. Um, and so they do a lot of different things that are uh, kind of similar to what we do, how we structure our communities. Um, they have physical structure to the community, so they kind of put their houses in different places for different reasons. Um, and the thing that I, I think about a lot when I, I think about bacteria or I think about people in communities is that they, um, this kind of division of, of labor means that oftentimes they're really dependent on each other. And so you could exploit that therapeutically, right? That you could in disrupt that interdependency. Um, but it also is interesting because we have, we see a lot of the same things we see in people. So we, you have this great community, everyone's doing their thing and they're playing along, but then you can have the evolution of cheaters where they exploit um, the resources of the rest of the community, but stop contributing to the, the resources. Um, and so they actually end up doing better for a certain period of time because they aren't, the energy, they're not putting the energy into generating whatever resource that they were supposed to. And so they start to kind of do better. But what ends up happening is that if that cheating continues to happen to a certain level, then it disrupts the entire community, which we refer to as the tragedy of the commons. So you, you can't cheat too much without ruining it for everyone and yourself. 
And so I always think about that. It's so common in, in our human societies, the same types of things that we see in these bacterial communities. And, and so that always really interests me. And then the idea that this diversity that we see in bacteria evolves kind of by chance and then is shaped into something that works really well. But those things that happen by chance are really just stochastic, meaning that they're just natural variation in biological systems that reveal this, these differences. And so it's these imperfections in biological systems that actually create something that works really well and is really beautiful. So uh, one of the things I wanna uh, kind of dig in there is when you were, in, and I might be uh, misremembering this, but, uh, Decades ago, uh, I mean, I think I watched it. In, I think my economics teacher in high school had us watch uh, some of Richard Dawkins' work on mm -hmm. on systems, and he was applying some of this to humans. But he would refer to uh, suckers and cheats yeah. in a system. Are you are you familiar with his his work there? Yeah, um, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, again, this is these are the same types of things that we see that. Um, you have all of these different different um, individuals in in these communities and and some that um, again this cheating on the system is re just really common like it, it it's constantly happening and constantly evolving but then we have this we have selection for it but we also have selection against it um, yeah and and then in De Dawkins also was like basically claiming in a human system one of the things we needed to introduce was the notion of a grudger mm. uh and the, the grudger basically will never cheat a sucker right because there's just people that that you know they're gullible or whatever you know that that have a tendency to get suckered mm. uh so the, but they they never cheat a sucker but uh they never forgive a cheat like and so they hold that grudge right um, and so is there, are there, are there, are there, are there grudgers in the bacteria community? Um, yeah, I would say so. Um, they're definitely, uh, again, this, these checks and balances just evolutionarily where we, they have, um, and bacteria also have memory of, of things that had happened in the past as well. So, um, I think that they're, they're, there's the possibility for a grudger, for sure. <laughs> what does, what, uh, how does memory present itself in a, a bacterial community? Um, so it, it can present itself in a, in a couple of different ways. Um, either, so, um, I'll try and put it simply, um, they can produce molecules that are signaling molecules either within a community, they send them out and then the rest of the community can sense those signals. And so um, there, there's memory as far as one part of the community telling the future progenitors what had happened in the past. Um, but then there's also the ability to have molecules that stay you know, within an individual cell or a daughter cell, because um, bacteria, you know, they divide so rapidly. Yep. Um, that the memory is really passed on with progenitors um, and daughter cells. And so they have molecules that uh, kind of tell them what had happened before. So this is, for me, what I'm fa fascinated with is how complex bacteria, bacteria community mm -hmm. seems with like, you know, kind of my, my mental model was probably more loosely related to it's like germs, they're all, just get rid of them. Uh, but how, how, how did you discover this complexity or, or the microbiology community? How, how do they, because like, there, there's so much detail that seems like it was revealed. How, how, how did the science get us there? Oh, geez, um, that's a big question. <laughs> I mean, the, the science came. It's also it's fine to say it's a dumb question too. It might no, be. <laughs> um, it's not a dumb question. It's just not really one that has a single answer, um, which is great. Right? There are <laughs> lots, uh, a huge, a lot of different scientists looking at things in different ways. Um, a lot of the complexity has really recently, well, in the past, you know, decade or so, been revealed by. Um, 
being able to uh, sequence the genomes of, at, at a rapid rate of a lot of different communities. Um, so now, you know, we can sequence the human genome, but we can very rapidly sequence bacterial genomes now. Um, and so that's giving us more of a, a concept of, of what bacteria are in what environments and what infections. So we're having, we're, we're able to get a broader, a more broad picture of the constituents of the communities and really starting to appreciate more and more that there are, that it, the diversity is, is huge, really. Um, and so, so one of the, thank you. Yeah, cause it, and one of the things I'm thinking about too, is you're, you're talking about these is, you know, one of my areas that I'm really interested in are just complex adaptive systems and how we react and respond to those. And so, um, one of the things I'm hearing too, it sounds like that, uh, uh, bacteria is a complex adaptive system and it, 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 it like us is, uh, continuing to try to find its, its best way to survive and propagate. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And this is, um, and another thing that kind of drove me to the field, this, um, idea of, you know, an arms race between um, pathogens and the human immune system. And, you know, we're seeing this right now in the, the current right. situation. Um, so this idea that, you know, they're just, they're evolving different strategies just to survive, really, right? It's not meant to harm anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of my, and this might be a misunderstanding on my part, one of the ways that I've thought about, um, viruses is in some ways they need to seek a form of equilibrium because if they're too aggressive yeah. they can't they can't live because their hosts die too quickly right and uh, is it is it similar with bacteria i mean is, is there some level where they're trying to seek an equilibrium where um because if, if they kill if they kill all the animals kill all the hosts right they have nowhere to yeah. live yeah absolutely this i mean it's a very common theme in all infections is that you want to be able to, you know, find a place to live, but not, you know, destroy it, right? Um, and, and so almost a Goldilocks version for, for bacteria? There's absolutely a, a Goldilocks version. <laughs> and, we, and we see that really in chronic infections, so like those that we, that we see in the lungs of cystic fibrosis patients, is that you, what you find is that actually over time, the bacteria um, start to turn off these factors that they make that traditionally help them invade and establish infection. We call them virulence factors, so factors that you know, help them, help them in, in the host, in a, in a person or animal or whomever, um, but they often are the same things that make you feel sick. And so they, they tend to turn them off as, as they establish chronic infections. And so it allows them to kind of be stealthy, really, to infect, but not be, um, detected by the immune system. So that's one big strategy that um, bacteria use to set up shock is to not be detected by your immune system. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, sure. want to switch gears a, a little bit. Now we'll talk. So one of the things that you're doing in Iowa City, right, is you, you are responsible for your own lab. So you're establishing a lab, uh, uh, pun somewhat intended so developing culture in your yeah. lab yes. uh, and uh so then you're responsible for for both research right advancing advancing science but you're also responsible for uh kind of shaping uh the next generation of scientists right so yeah. students and uh do you have do you have postdocs in your lab as well um, at the moment, I have um, two graduate students, two PhD students, um, and a research assistant, and then a couple of undergraduate students as well, but not, okay. not postdocs yet. All right, because and, and uh, uh, a friend that we have in common, uh, Noah Butler, uh, a lot of times I talk to Noah about... Um, you know, uh, similarities that we have from, from my side, like how to train designers to be better designers, better consultants, and uh, uh, basically ask better questions. And I know we talked to Noah, uh, you know, I talked to him about that. And I'm like, you know, how, how do you help try to, to train? So I'm curious uh, if you don't, don't mind kind of walking me through the, the path of how do you try to shape the next generation of scientists? 
Yeah. Um, well, I'll be honest and say I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> um, yeah. doing, doing my best, um, thinking about, you know, my mentors and what my, how my mentors helped me. Um, I think that it's training the future generation of scientists. It comes from a couple, I look at it as two different arms. Um, one is that, you know, we teach them the foundations of the knowledge that they need um, to have the, you know, that foundation of scientific knowledge. Um, but what a lot of what we teach PhD students is how to think independently, how to solve ideas, um, mm -hmm. how to effectively utilize the scientific method to, you know, generate a good uh, hypothesis that's um, supported by evidence and then, you know, how to test it, right? How to test that hypothesis right. and design an experiment. Um, and so it's really this combination of, again, uh, knowledge and understanding of the process, but then how to think independently, how to think creatively. Um, and some of that just comes with time and practice um, that they, we lead by example, um, but also kind of asking, just continually asking them to, to think and asking them new questions and, and not telling, not giving them the answers to the, yeah. to the questions, making them think through um, the process. Yeah, I know that I, in, in teaching for me, I think one of the challenges too is sometimes when we feel time pressure is sometimes that you feel like, okay, let me just jump in. Let, I'm just like, let me just demonstrate right now and we'll get it done. But uh, yeah. it, I, I think that really in the long run slows down the learning process yeah. for the student or learner, right? So it's like they have to go through it. They have to feel it. Uh, and uh, also they have to skin their knees sometimes, right? And yeah. I, uh, sometimes I, I don't, I, when, I, I don't think you learn a lot when everything's successful. I think, I think the biggest learning comes from some, something broke and yeah. why did it break? And that, that's been a huge learning experience for me in the beginning that the idea of letting people fail. Um, and that it, in the first, probably in the first six months, I realized pretty quickly that I really wanted everything to be perfect for everyone. That um, I wanted to give them a project that they would be able to excel at, that everything would be great. Um, and that if I hadn't set everything up for them, so they would have the best, you know, be as successful as they possibly yeah. could, then I had failed them as a mentor. Um, but I realized that that's not realistic. That's, that's not how science goes. That's not how life goes. <laughs> so giving them the opportunity to fail and being okay with that. Um, and I was, I was being so safe with the projects that are in the ideas that I was giving to them um, that I knew that if it were me, I would be, I would be willing to take the risk, but I wasn't willing to take the that risk with other people yet. Right. And I had to learn that that's, that's the, that's the way that we learn. That's the way we, you know, discover new things and grow as scientists and people. So thinking about science as a craft and thinking about the, the kind of this, this learning process, one of the things that I'm interested in is, um, is an innovation perspective and, and science always advances. Uh, and the thing that, the thing that knocks out old science is more science, right? That's one of the things I love about the system is, is uh, its ability to uh, keep going forward, right? It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily stop. Like it's almost as if it's like, this is our best knowledge to date, but we can keep going. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious in, in almost a learning organization, your lab, you and your students is what is that balance between foundational mm -hmm. and then, new it's basically redundant novel how do you how do you balance that and uh how do you know when it's it might be appropriate to challenge what is foundational or accepted as fact is that making sense sorry I, I, that was a long-winded question yeah. well absolutely and this is this is science like this is kind of the whole foundation of it right is that you need to um 
learn the system, know everything about the system that you possibly can, everything that's been studied, um, everything that's been reported, um, and then to challenge that, to challenge the system. And we try to do that in particular with our own work, right? That you want to be your, your, you know, biggest critic, right? That if we, you always want to be challenging yep. your own hypothesis, yep. challenging your own model. What is, um, what's the experiment that we could do that would make the model fall apart? That's the first experiment you should do, right? Um, and so, so sorry, just want to pause right there. So lit, lit, you're trying to break it, right? It's like yeah, break it. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and if you get to a point where, and, and we are, and we always have to accept the idea that we are developing a model as best we can at this moment with the information that we can. Um, and so that's always the case, but yeah, designing, you always want to be able think of ways that might break the model. What, what would be, what would be that thing? Um, and so we, we think about that a lot, but the, you know, the, I think the other part of your question is what's, when do you, when to challenge and how, right? Like, especially other dogma in the field, um, and right. ideas that are, you know, seem very sound with the information that you had at the time. Um, and so I just think we continue, we just continually do that um, and try and be thoughtful about what we know and what the limitations are of what we know. Um, and then, you know, one idea that I think you and I had talked about before is, is in your own thinking, creative thinking, can you be um, limited by always thinking about what we know without and not, and does that limit your creativity to think of a new idea? And so one of the things that we do a lot of, I encourage my students to do, we do as a group and, and I do for myself is to learn as much as you can about a system and then put it all away. So all of your books and all of your notes and, and whatever, and, and step, take a step back from it for a certain period of time and then come back with literally a fresh sheet of paper or a fresh mm -hmm. whiteboard and, and write out, you know, what's most, what's the most important question? Um, what do, what do we need to learn? What do we know? What don't we know? And yeah. can we attack this problem in, in a different or new way? Or is, is this maybe not even the most important problem we should be attacking? Maybe it's something else. So, um, having the foundation, but then having the space, I think, you know, mentally to, to come at it from a different perspective. Yeah, that's uh, a few, a few things there. One is that um, the um, notion of structuration or structuration theory, right. was, was the idea that uh, yeah, the, the, the choices that we make, help enable faster action in the future, right? Because it, it's almost, it's almost sort, it becomes a sort system for us. Like, I don't need to think about that anymore. And it's almost like, you know, the, the, the human brain wanting to not have to think hard about things, right? Kind of survival <laughs> instincts where that you don't pause and think hard about things, right? But those choices that we make uh, also limit future possibilities, right? So it's, it's, yeah. it's this tension of it can, it can speed things up, but it also then becomes a, a almost a limiting mechanism in the future. Yeah. And so I'm kind of hearing that a little bit. And then one of the other things I wanted to pursue in there with you is you talked about being a critic. And one of the things I love about that is in healthy design groups and design studios, one of the most powerful things we have is critique. Yeah. Um, and Unfortunately, good critique or bad critique is almost like a, a cycle of abuse. <laughs> like if you grew up under uh, bad, you know, like teachers that gave bad critique and were vicious, you probably will be vicious. And so one of the things I, I'm interested in is creating healthy environments for critique yeah. and shared questions about how does this address the problem? Mm -hmm. uh, and what, what, what ways might this be better? And also what might be some of the unexpected consequences if we go with this solution. And uh, so I, I loved hearing, you know, being critical because that's so, so important to uh, be able to beat up an idea without beating up a person. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, 
it's something that I try and do while training my students is that they, they have, we want them to come up with ideas, right? So the first step often is just getting them to be comfortable having an idea, um, taking the knowledge that they've learned all of, you know, through undergrad and grad school and, and creating a new idea. Um, but then oftentimes their ideas might be flawed, right? That's totally right. natural. And so you don't want to discourage them from having ideas, but you want to teach them how to then critically evaluate their own idea, right? So I spend a lot of time, they, they come up with an idea. And actually I think about my, my graduate mentor always used to say some, this line to us that we all repeat now, which is that's one interpretation. Um, so you would say something and you would say, well, that's one interpretation. Um, and so, you know, you start with that and then ask them a series of questions to lead them to the conclusion that perhaps that idea was flawed in a variety of different ways, right? So learning how to critique yourself, I think, is really important in science, um, but also being able to take critique, right? So we... Yeah. Um, we're constantly shot down our ideas by our peers um, through the process of peer review of our, the journal articles that we submit and the grants that we submit. So um, be learning to be hardy and take critique and, and you know, use it wisely, right? Um, to right. learn how it can be productive and, and how to use it to be better and not take it personally is another important scientific skill. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I know in the past, you and I have also uh, talked about the notion of problem thinking versus solution thinking, right? And uh, like on the design side, where we encourage designers to try to fall in love with the problem, not the solution, mm -hmm. because that, that, uh, that's solution driven, while, while important, right? We need to solve problems. And, uh, uh, but if we don't understand the problem, Mm -hmm. Our solutions don't really work, but also what what I've found is a lot of solution driven thinking is uh, uh, very ego driven, and yeah. uh, and and sometimes then you're you're spending so much energy trying to defend your solution rather than continuing to try to understand best understand the problem to date. Yeah, um, and I, yeah. I'm curious if you see examples of that in in some, not not like to call out individuals, but. Right. No, like absolutely. how that might display itself. Yeah, absolutely. We see this all the time. And it's something, you know, again, that you and I have talked about that I, I find really interesting, but also, you know, sort of troubling is that this idea that we really do as scientists often, I think, I think we go into science being in love with the problem. Um, but then we kind of get trained to fall in love with the solution in that we even define our careers and our labs based on the solutions that we found for a, cer a certain problem. Um, so, you know, we each have our own individual laboratories and we are, we almost promote them based on, you know, these are our publications and each of these publications have found X solution to a certain problem. And, and that drives almost who we are. And I think that a return to thinking about the problem um, and, and our collective solutions um, could really uh, be more productive. That's interesting. One of the, one of the ways that uh, I, I'd learned that the, uh, and it might be apocryphal, uh, but one of, one of the things about uh, the Disney, early Disney creative teams mm -hmm. was that uh, once somebody introduced an idea, then it was the group's idea. Yeah. It, it wasn't your idea. And uh, the, you know, kind of the, the pessimist in me is like, I bet the intellectual property lawyers at Disney love that because nobody owns the, it's, it's right. then <laughs> the company's idea. Yeah. But on a, on an optimistic side, I love the idea that, um, then if you can separate the person from the idea, yeah. right, then it's, it, you can have that healthier ex exploration. But I think a lot of times we, we don't let go of the idea. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, what advice you might have uh, for, for scientists to uh, have healthier collaboration? Um, well, the, I think that we, we, we had talked about one idea that I 
find really interesting, in particular when I started my lab, um, that it's, you know, it's the Lamoli lab, it's your lab, you, you, you get hired as an individual, um, and everything has your name on it. And, and it really struck me as I started just like labeling things in my lab with my name. Um, and, and it becomes this, it felt so much about me, about my lab, everyone, you, you work towards tenure, you work towards this developing a career around yourself. And it stopped being about it. I, it just struck me that it was the way that we were structuring it, just the way we were calling it seemed to take away from the idea, the ideas that we had, the, the real premise of things. Um, you know, we have a, a website with our lab and it has the ideas on there, but the first thing is, are the individuals, right? And the people who are doing the work and the people are really important. And I, we want to train individuals right. and support the careers of my students. And, um, but our, our system of, you know, publication and it being really important where your name is on a publication, whether you're first or last or, um, who did the work and lots of conversations about who should get credit for what I think really distracts us from the main idea of why we're doing what we're doing and what's the, what's the problem and what's the question. And I almost right. feel like we could be better served just by calling like a business, you know, calling your lab by a, the name of the problem. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. Cause you know, and thinking about that too, as you've said, the, the, the notion of the name and an ego that might follow that. Right. And, and not, not that, that, people are doing this consciously, but how, how systems replicate themselves with some of these things that we just take for granted or you know, like a fish not realizing the role of water, right? It's just in it. So it, but you said, you know, the lab goes with your name yeah. and then the, I mean, a big, a big thing in academia is also who's the primary investigator and then on grants or uh, academic papers, right? It's, it's yeah. it's almost it's almost like Hollywood credits. Like who's going to get the starring, featuring, uh, inter introducing? <laughs> and I think that again, it's not why any of us got into science to begin with, and it's not really what we, what our what drives us, but it is the kind of the system that we live in. Um, yeah. So we, and we had talked about, uh, I, I love, you were talking about mentors and advice. And so especially like something that sticks with you, right? Like that, that's one interpretation was, was something you received from a mentor. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the notions of advice that we talk a lot about on the podcast, and I'm stealing from Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist, but he talks about advice. And he says, when you give advice, you're actually just talking to your younger self because it's yeah. something you wished you would have known. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what's a, uh, maybe a piece of advice or an idea you wish you might've had earlier in your career? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I've had a lot of really amazing mentors, um, both, uh, in a traditional setting, but also my peers in, um, various labs that I've been in. And I think that one, one thing I would really like to tell my younger self that I learned from another postdoc in my lab at Emory is that um, it sounds sort of cliche, but this like parental idea of you can do anything that you set your mind to. And I think that even though from a young age, I knew I wanted to go into science and be a scientist, I think there was some part of me that always doubted whether or not I would actually be able to make a difference or be successful in that. But out of sheer stubbornness or will, I just <laughs> persisted um, yeah. without the real underlying belief that it would happen or that I would, again, like be here, sitting here today. Right. Um, and in my, with this colleague of mine was, is one of the smartest, most successful and, and thoughtful scientists that I know. And Initially, when we met, I thought that 
it was just completely natural, just this gift, this gift that he had that I didn't have and I would never have it and like good for him, but that would never be me. And uh, what I learned from being around him more and more was that it wasn't an accident. It didn't just, it wasn't something he just woke up having. It was something that, you know, he worked on every single day, all day, every day. And part of, but the difference was that, and I worked all day, every day too. So, so the difference that I found was that he believed that that work would become something special that, that the end of all of this work was discovery, that the end of it was, you know, learning everything that there was to know about a problem and then coming up with a creative solution for it. And he had the confidence that, that you could do that, that, that that would happen. And just watching the process and watching someone that, that if you just could, that if you had that confidence that anyone can do that, that I could do it, that, you know, that, and if you learn and you had that confidence that you could indeed, um, you know, do something special in science that you could discover if you, if that was the goal. Um, but yeah. if the goal was to just persist, um, until, you know, someone told you you couldn't do it anymore, which is how I felt, then, you know, you weren't going to achieve that discovery. But if, if the goal really was to, you know, contribute something special that that anyone could do it that that's great and one of the other things that i'm hearing in that that i really appreciate is um the more i study uh master crafts people is that there is a lot of hard work that went into it and on the outside it usually is Oh, look at them. They're so lucky. They just have this gift. They're natural. And and I know people do have natural talents, right? So I'm not, but, but great craftspeople are always working on their craft. Right. And, and I I just find that it it is like kind of uh, almost from a sports perspective, it's like, you got to put in the reps, right? You got to, you got to do it and you got to keep doing it. And uh, you got to get back up again when you get knocked down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was really profound for me to learn like, yeah, this, it, it was not an accident that, um, you know, that he didn't, he always seemed to have like a, a thoughtful thing to say at every seminar, something yeah. insightful. And then you learned that, well, he read the papers of the person who was presenting that seminar and was prepared to, to say something thoughtful. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's it's funny because it's like it sounds like the characteristics I look for when I'm trying to build a team. They're just, I mean, the three th- main things I look for in a person is, um, are they smart? Uh, can they get shit done? And can they play well with others? Right? right. It's so it's right. It sounds like you ha- you have a a very thoughtful person, smart, right? And uh, and like so, thought playing well with others always had something to offer. So I I love that. Yeah. Uh, one of the other topics I wanted to cover with you that um, I don't know, you know, if uh, uh, you know, listeners probably won't know, but uh, I know your time in Iowa. One, one, there's, there's some a, a big part of your time here has been shaped by uh, how how you were dealing with uh, uh, cancer. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? Um, I don't mind. Um, yeah. So again, I arrived uh, in Iowa and fall of 2018 and then in the summer of 2019 I was diagnosed with breast cancer and so as we we were talking that I realized that almost half my time in Iowa has been you know uh, dealing with this um, and I'm doing fine by the way Um, just recently finished my chemo and had surgery Um, and yeah it's so interesting um the combination of having cancer and a pandemic um, and not recommended. You wouldn't recommend (laughs) not recommended, um, but it's okay. Really. Um, It's, it, it's really influenced as I've been thinking about it lately, my, my connection with, with Iowa city and the community in in a really interesting way. Um, So I, I read 
I don't, I, I don't journal very often. I don't journal as, as often as I should. <laughs> um, but I, I was looking back um, at what I had written before all of this, a, a few different things. Um, and when I first came to Iowa, I was, um, I was excited and I was excited to start my job, but it was a huge transition for me. And, uh, you know, it's challenging to be a young female um, in a scientific department and, you know, at an age where it's challenging to make new friends and be, be a part of community. I'd also moved around quite a bit because of my career. So um, I wasn't, I hadn't had a community that I had stayed in for, for quite some time. And so uh, with, with what's happened and having cancer and, and being um, in a place where I really didn't know that many people, the community has just come out for me in, in ways that are so heartwarming in ways that I had never expected. Um, and I've always been an independent person and didn't really need help from people. <laughs> um, so I yeah. thought, but the, um, the number of, of people in the community and the, the department um, and the friends that I've made it through this experience has really been a little overwhelming for me um, and taught me things in ways that I would have not, I don't know, that I didn't know I needed to learn, I guess. Um, yeah. And I looked back at what I had written about a year ago and I was detailing plans. Don't, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, detailing plans to leave of, of like, what's my, you know, like 10 step plan <laughs> to, right. you know, to move, to move somewhere else. Because I just, I had just gotten here and there, the winter was horrible. <laughs> like, or just a, you know, a variety of different things. And, and now I think like, there's no place I would rather be, especially given this circumstance because of just this incredible community um, that has really come to just, and I have some dear friends, you know, our, our friend Noah and has been texting me nearly every day to, to check in on me <laughs> um, and yeah. to make sure that I'm okay. And friends have brought me food and, you know, sent me notes and gifts and it's just been incredibly wonderful in, in ways that I would have not expected. And it's also forced me to kind of slow down a little um, and in particular, you know, being quarantined at home. Um, <laughs> right. And, um, and so I, it's, I've learned more about Iowa and Iowa city and, and the community. And it's just been such a, a lovely place to, um, be able to, to think and grow and be supported, um, by these really amazing people. Um, and I actually learned that, um, the house that I lived, live in is, um, was owned by, um, the, uh, one of the women at the writer's workshop and I get books sent to me um, for her. Um, and so I keep trying to send them, send them back. <laughs> um, and so it was interesting to, um, you had sent me the documentary of the city of literature. And so just feeling more of a part of the community has been um, a really interesting thing that's kind of come out of my experience here. Um, and then you know, going through this with my students and having them be so supportive and in seeing what they are, um, how they've come out for this and um, learning that I need to teach them that um, you can be strong through things, but also like imperfect. Um, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Question for you then. So uh, this might be the opposite side of your, uh, your, your, your 10 step plan, your, yeah. <laughs> your escape plan. plan has uh, been modified by the way. Right. Right. <laughs> yes. So based on, um, based on your, your experience and you said the community coming out, if you had to write a new bumper sticker for Iowa or Iowa city, what might that say? <laughs> oh boy. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I have to say that, um, I really enjoy the, you know, the current COVID theme that we're in this together. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I have, I mentioned to one friend that I wanted a yard sign and the next day it was in my yard, right? Like they went and got me and put it in my yard and I just walked outside and yeah. there it was. <laughs> like, okay, there's only one person who knows that I wanted a yard sign and now it's here. Um, and so I really feel that 
quite a bit with with the whole community and, and with our department and and the friends that I've made and um, again it's just I, I've always been so independent and so I thought that when when people started coming out for me initially I I was almost offended like well you just feel bad for me right like <laughs> you feel sorry that I have cancer and that's you know not what I'm looking for I don't need your like sympathy or whatever um, but I found that, you know, that's not what, it, that's not what people meant. Um, and it's selected for some really um, amazing people and some really dear friends in my life. And, um, I'm not sure I would have gotten that without this experience. <laughs> Thanks so much for, for sharing that. I really, really do appreciate that. And, and also just super happy with all the progress that you're making and, uh, yeah. especially in, in the time of pandemic, uh, <laughs> On top of all of this uh, craziness, yeah. Uh, one of the one of the questions I like to ask guests is: uh, Are there any topics we covered or questions that I didn't ask that you wish I would have asked? Kind of related to the Iowa idea. Oh, geez. Um, I don't. I'm not sure about questions, but one of the things that I thought about with watching the documentary and thinking about the Iowa idea and something that I really loved is that I don't, I like the idea of scientists being considered creatives. Um, I hadn't thought about that before. I'm not sure how many people had. And, um, yeah. you know, we've talked about, we've covered this in a, a couple of different ways, this idea of creativity and science. Um, but I do, I certainly believe that. And, that we're creative and um, and not just you know robots doing experiments, pipetting colored liquid from one tube to another. Yeah. So I really just enjoyed that incorporation and and also how we can, um, especially in this time of the pandemic, be a part of the community um, of of Iowa City and you know and um, how we can educate people. Um, how we can be a part of, um, you know, helping and, you know, spreading the word and, um, yeah, just educating the community about, you know, what we do and how we do it and how we're trying to do it better and what's really important. Awesome. Yeah, I, I want to just thank you so much for for being on the, on the podcast. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, so best of luck with uh, all the future research and uh, continuing to to get healthy and uh, thank you and make sure that we have lots of lots of good uh, reading materials during during a time yeah. of the pandemic yes <laughs>